You are listening to a sermon from the Way of Jesus series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we are exploring the way of life that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Join us Sundays in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at www.doxa-church.com. Matthew 5, 43, 48 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, you're, so that you may be called sons of, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we want to hear you speak. We're thankful that you gave us your word and your spirit, that we have the very words of God and we have the means by which we can understand it that you can change our hearts with it, that you can transform us from the inside out and make us the people you meant us to be. So we sit before you and ask you to speak to our hearts, to change us, to transform us into the image of the Son. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning. Really good to be with you. Party today is going to be amazing. Excited about that. Uh, it's a fun, fun to be with the family. Uh, my name's Jeff. If you are visiting, I want to say hello to you. I, along with Alex Gioni and Derek LaFontaine and our wives, give leadership over the central area, which is uh, Bellevue, Redmond, and Kirkland. And so if you're part of that, make sure you say hi to us, and we want to serve you and love you well uh, as we care for you. Today, if you've been with us, uh, you realize that we are on the sixth illustration in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of what it looks like to be flourishing, to be people of the kingdom, to follow in the way of Jesus. And Jesus has described a kind of righteousness that was meant to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day. He was calling them to something far better, far deeper, far fuller, far holistic. A life that God wants for all of us to live because it's how he designed us. So after this illustration that I'm going to talk about today, which is the six, Jesus gives us six ways that this gets worked out. He could have given us many, many more, but he chose six in particular Uh, We hear this at the end, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, could also be translated whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect or whole. Now we're gonna come back to that verse, but keep that in mind as we walk through the text because that isn't just the summation of today's passage, it is the summation of all six illustrations. That Jesus is saying, this is the kind of life God wants for you as illustrated by these six examples. So we're going to get there at the end, but notice Jesus follows a similar pattern. You have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say. So let's look at it. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love 
your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, it's important to note that this is half right. Okay, Jesus is quoting uh, what has been restated by the religious leaders over the years as they took the law of God, the Torah, and they changed it somewhat. Now, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. If you know the Bible, what is normally, what normally comes after that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. as yourself. Conveniently, they took that one out. Notice that. That's important. Second, the second statement is not actually in the Bible. Hate your enemy. God nowhere commands his people to hate their enemies. So what is Jesus quoting? Where is this coming from? Where did the people come up with this idea? Well, the first part, just to be clear, is from Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's important to note and keep the screen on the screen, as your own, be sons of your own people, you could see they might have said, okay, we're, we're supposed to do this with people that belong to Israel. And that was one of the conclusions they were coming to. Uh, but they're misreading the rest of the text. If you look at other verses, you would find that that is not actually what God is commanding them to do. But before we do that, let's ask ourselves, why in the world did they come up with a statement, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? This is actually, there's a lot written on this. I don't have time to summarize all of it, but I will try to give you some context for why some believe they landed on this conclusion in their teaching Some would believe that Jesus is referencing what they did with the mix of text, in particular the Psalms, where people are speaking of personal enemies and their hatred toward them, like Psalm 119, 113, where it says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Or Psalm 139, 21 through 22, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete Hatred, I count them my enemies. Now, in order for us to rightly understand the Bible and apply it to our lives, we have to make sure we understand that it's written in different genres, and then we have to learn how to apply those different genres. So, in particular, Psalms are written from the perspective of a human crying out to God on behalf of the brokenness they see in the world or in themselves. It's really important to know that the psalmists are not primarily saying, Everything that is being said is exactly true. Okay, and you might go, wait a minute, I thought all of scripture was true. Yeah, it is. It's displaying for us what's going on in King David as he thinks about the world and its brokenness and he realizes there's something very wrong out there and out of the cry of his heart, he says what he's actually thinking, what he's actually feeling. In fact, what's going on in the Psalms is giving us a picture of real, broken, sinful people interacting with the world and God in such a way that they're not hiding themselves or their feelings. In a sense, the Psalms give us a really good picture of what it looks like to sit before God as a counselor. Anybody ever gone to counseling? You aren't raising your hand, I know. I will. It's like, I'm free to just pour it all out. All the mess comes out. That's what the Psalms are. 
And, and we know this because, and we, should, we know that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that David's going, I'm telling you all how to treat your enemies, because what's the very next verse that we hear after he says, I hate them? Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah, I love what, what David is saying is, I know the things that come out of my mouth are not always what you want. They're not always in line with your will, God, or your character, God, but I'm not afraid to tell you what I'm going through, what I'm feeling. Years ago, I was applying for a, a job. I was interviewing for a position at a church back in Chicago, and they brought me through a pretty extensive process. I think I must have been interviewed by about 20 or more people. I also went through a psychological examination uh, that at the end of it, they said, you have an anger problem. My wife, Janie, said, I, I don't, I've never seen you lose your temper. I don't think that's true. I said, you know, can we do, redo this? We did it again. Yep, you still have an anger problem. Uh, and, and it became clear that it wasn't that I lost my temper or that somehow there was these outbursts of explosive uh, anger showing up, but rather that I didn't know how to deal with my anger. Instead, I stuffed it and pushed it deep down inside because I didn't know how to express it outwardly in ways that I could come to God with it and experience healing. I love a few years ago when I was in a really, really difficult situation, Janie said to me, why don't you just tell God the truth? You hate these people. And I said, I can't say that because that's not right. She goes, yeah, but you do. I'm like, I know, but I still can't say that. That's not right. She goes, look at the Psalms, Jeff. And I realized, yes, they're there to instruct us and how to be honest before God with the brokenness inside of us and the brokenness in the world and how we don't respond like God does so that we might respond like God does. He wants us to cry out. He wants us to express truthfully what's going on. And unfortunately, some believe that the rabbis took liberty with that particular kind of expression and said, see, God wants us to hate our enemies. And they kind of bought into a patriotic, divine permission to be all about Israel and to hate everybody else, especially the Roman government who was occupying them at the time. I'm sure glad we don't do any of that in our country. Use the name of God to set our country up as though it should give us permission to hate everybody else. We don't do that. Yet we do. And that needs to change especially those of us who know God. Martin Lloyd-Jones took a, di a different position on this. He said he believed the scribes and Pharisees were teaching that you ought to love Jews, which is how we should translate neighbors, and then hate all others, which is Gentiles. That the religious leaders were saying, when God says neighbor, he means just us and everyone like us. It's got some kind of a homogeneous kind of approach that uh, kind of, a racist approach. If you're not like us, if you don't talk like us, believe like us, look like us, eat like us, live like us, then you're not our neighbor and therefore we have permission to reject you. That's happening all over the place today. In fact, I would love for you just to stop and ask yourself, who have you given yourself permission to not love? Who have you given yourself Permission to not serve, to not care for, to not bless. 
For honest, all of us have someone or many who we have said, it's okay to treat them like that. It's okay to treat them other than neighbor, to not love them as I love myself. Now, it's clear that the religious leaders were obviously ignoring the text around this text that states, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 of Leviticus 19 says this, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now notice the pattern. Each time God gives them this command of how they're to care for the stranger or the sojourner or the alien or the outsider, he says, I am the Lord your God. And he connects it to something he did as their God. In other words, God always connects his commands to his character, who he is, and his activity, what he's done in your life. And what he's saying to Israel is, you were strangers in the land, I took care of you in a foreign land, the first Pharaoh, I moved his heart to care for you in Egypt so you would survive. Of course, the second Pharaoh turned and went the other direction and oppressed you, and so I got you out of there, took care of you all along the way in the, in the wilderness journeys, and got you into the promised land. I am the Lord your God. I cared for you when you were strangers and aliens, so now, therefore, you do the same. In other words, whatever God's done to you, he plans to do through you. That's how it works. If you're new to Christianity, the, the thing that's remarkable about the Christian faith is that God is not waiting for you and I to get our act together so he can respond. He preemptively comes and loves us when we are unlovable so that we'll be loved and therefore be able to love. He doesn't wait to, to show mercy once we've bowed down before him. He showed mercy in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross before you could even wake up to the reality that you needed him. And then his spirit wakes you up so that you might see your need for the cross and bow before Jesus because you know he's merciful. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then whatever happens to us, he extends out through us. That's the good news of the gospel is God's not waiting on you to get your act together. He comes to you with his act together to change you from the inside out so that through you he can do a mighty work. It's good news. And that's what Jesus is trying to help them understand. You've misunderstood the entire law. The law is not meant to give you permission to not be like God. It's meant to lead you to be like him. So he ties it to who God is, what he's done for him in Leviticus. You might be aware of this that in Jesus' ministry a little bit later, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I want to kind of find out what I need to do to be accepted. He can make it into the kingdom. And Jesus says, well, do you know the, you know the law? And the guy says, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These I've done. Jesus says, okay, great. He goes, wait a minute. The lawyer stops. Who's my neighbor? The text actually says, seeking to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? That's an important thing because what does Jesus do? Jesus then goes on to tell him a story of their enemy, a Samaritan, who we now call the Good Samaritan, living the life of the kingdom. Some of you know the story. Jesus tells the story of a, a Jewish man who's left along the side of the road after being beaten up and robbed. 
A priest walks by, a religious, Jewish religious leader, does nothing to help him. A Levite walks by, which is the worship leader of that day. That Just imagine Donald walking by, doing nothing to help him. I mean, Donald would have helped, Donald would help, but this guy didn't. Uh, and, and then a, a Samaritan walks by. And the Samaritan takes care of the Jew. He binds up his wounds, feeds him, gives him something to drink, takes him to the inn, pays for all of the cost to take care of this man. And Jesus asked the man, the lawyer, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus makes the enemy a hero and Jesus redefines neighbor as anyone you come across in the everyday stuff of life. Neighbor now is, yes, your neighbors, your coworkers, your peers, your classmates, your professors, your teachers. It's everyone you come across the path of life meeting who's in need at any moment. In other words, he's saying, be human the way I meant you to be. Care for one another. Seek to bless one another. Help each other's lives be flourishing because wherever I send you, I prepared something for you to walk into. See, the religious leaders knew this. You just need to know. Like, they're playing a game, a religious game. I mean, they would know Proverbs 25, verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. We know this because later on, the apostle Paul, who is a very good Pharisee, his life is changed by Jesus, quotes that exact same passage in Romans 12, 20. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I I have to correct what you're believing. Your application of the law is wrong. And so verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Last week, we talked about the idea of non-violent resistance, not becoming a victim and not becoming violent, but having a dignified way of standing up against evil in such a way that it exposes it but shows the kingdom of God and how we deal with it. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to that. This week, we're talking about how do we proactively do good to those who do evil. Augustine put it this way, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. John Stott said, for we are to go beyond forbearance to service beyond the refusal to repay evil to the resolve to overcome evil with good. To be clear, to love your enemy is not just to put up with them or to be cordial in your relationships with them. To love them is to serve them. To love them is to ask yourself, how might I do good to them? How might I enable their life to flourish? How might I actually love them in such a way that it would resemble how I would want to be loved myself. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, I'm thinking of love in action. Not something where you say, quote unquote, love your enemies and just leave it at that, but love your enemies to the point that you're willing to sit in at a lunch counter in order to help them find themselves. You're willing to go to jail for them. I just want to stop and ask you, how do you prefer being loved Gary Chapman identified five love, love languages. You know, some love you know, words of encouragement. Some love gifts. 
Some love acts of service. Some love time spent with. Some love, what's the last one? Physical touch, affection. You might go, how do I enjoy being loved? How would I want to be cared for and loved? Am I willing to do that for my enemy? It's interesting, as we think about this, many of us come up with lots of reasons why we won't, if we're honest. Some of you are like, Jeff, my neighbor is my enemy. They have these parties, loud music, teenagers running around, bonfires late at night, my baby's getting woken up by them, and you're actually talking about me. I'm your neighbor. Some of you are going, oh no. (laughs) That's us. Sometimes I wonder, like, what are the neighbors thinking? We're probably keeping them awake. Probably waking up their kids. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm the neighbor that you don't like. Some of you have a boss or a coworker that is hard to deal with. And you give yourself lots of reasons why you don't want to love them or serve them because they took the job I should have gotten. They undercut me in the way I did my job and somehow I lost the promotion. Some of you, it's not neighbor, physical. Some of you, it's not a worker. Some of you, it's your family, right? Thanksgiving is the hardest time to give thanks because you're with the people you don't want to give thanks for, right? I mean, if we're honest, there's real, there's real struggles we all have in different places. And it's why it's interesting that Jesus' very next thing after he says, love your enemies, is what? Say it with me. Are you with me? Pray for those who persecute you. Don't miss that. Jesus knows that if I were to sit with any of you right now and we were talking about your enemy, you would go, I can't, Jeff. It's impossible. You don't understand what they do and how they treat me and what's going on. And I would go, read the rest of what Jesus says. He doesn't say, love your enemies with all your might. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because he knows that you can't do it without God's help. He also knows that prayer is the best way to be realigned with God's heart and to be changed and transformed into God's image. Bonhoeffer says it this way, praying for our enemy, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side and plead for him to God. Moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It's impossible to pray for someone without loving him. And it's impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him and we shall find our love breaks first into bud and then into blossom. Anybody experienced that? Can I get it? Seriously, testify. If you've experienced God, change your heart towards someone as you prayed for them. I have. You see, you, you can't go to God who is love and pray for your enemy that they would be loved without you being changed into being a more loving person. Like you, you just The beauty of prayer, prayer is not just requests thrown to God. Prayer is submitting to God in your need for him to do something in you and through you. 
That's the beauty of prayer. In fact, all of you worship something or someone and whatever it is, you become more like. In fact, you could pay attention to what your God is like by the life you live because it's an expression of your faith and submission to the God you worship. And so whenever you look at your life and go, man, I don't like that part, that part of you probably needs to come under the reality of what God is actually like so that he can make you more like him in that area. So I say, man, I, I'm having a hard time loving my, my neighbor right now. They're much more like an enemy to me than a friend. And as I come before God and say, God, I pray for them. I pray for them by name. I pray that you'd bless them, that you would encourage them, that you would pour your your goodness into them, that you would be gracious and merciful to them. And as they do that, what happens? I become more gracious, more merciful, more loving. I get changed in the process. And you might go, yeah, but they didn't change. And that's not the point because God's not saying, try to change them with yourself. He's saying, let me do that work. You just submit to me and let me change you. The beauty of praying for someone who persecutes you is you get changed. You get changed. You become a different person. You're no longer riddled with bitterness. You're no longer enslaved with hatred. You're no longer captive by the things that you can't control. You just say, God, the only thing I can control is me getting on my knees before you and saying, God, help me. And God, help them. God, be merciful. See, prayer changes us. So that, verse 45, you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. What does that mean? It means you might look like your dad. You might look like the heavenly father in the way you live. For he makes his son, this is what he's like, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Alfred Plummer summed it up. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human, and I would add broken human. To return good for evil is divine. See, I, I don't want us to forget the story, family. If you're a visitor with us, we, we, we anchor every text in the overarching story of God throughout the whole Bible. And we know in the beginning God created man and women in his image for the purpose of displaying what he's like in all of life. That's who we are and made, we're made to be. And because we rebelled against God and sinned and chose our own way and our own means, that image of God got broken and marred and distorted. It's a shadow version of the reality and all of us know that because we desperately want to be more and better than we presently are and we want the world to be more and better than it presently is and that's God's eternity on your heart saying this is not the way it's supposed to be because we're wanting to be like him. We, we were made to display the very heart of God, the character of God in all of life. That's who we were meant to be. And those who have faith in Jesus Christ as the one who came as the true image bearer of God to display the very heart of God for his enemies, went to the cross, suffered and died for our sins, cried out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, and rose again on the third day after he died so that he might show his victory and power over all that destroys us. We who believe in him and put our faith in him have been redeemed by his very life and we have been transformed to be his very children, image bearers of God. We've been born again, the Bible says, of the spirit of God so that we aren't just trying to be sons of God or daughters of God. We are. We truly are. And we truly have the ability to live a life through the power of the spirit that displays what God the Father is really like. We have it. 
Those of you who aren't yet Christians, I want to tell you, it's not just about you getting right with God or having your sins forgiven. It's about God changing you from the inside out, making you a new creation, making you a child of God who can and will resemble the very truth of what God is like. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's Christ in you, transforming you from the inside out. That's what we are, family. Amen? It's not just, I want to look like my dad. It's that I do, and I can look like my dad. I have the power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead to help me live a new life. Now, what is my dad like? What is our Heavenly Father like? God is love. God is love. To be clear, he is love to everyone. He can't help it. It's who he is. Theologians call this common grace. That he blesses those who are righteous and unrighteous, that he loves good people and bad people, that he lets the sun, sometimes in the Pacific Northwest, shine on all of us. He certainly gives lots of rain for all of us. If you are alive, God loves you. You were made by God. You are the expression of his love. Your very life is an expression that God is love and he gave you life like a husband and wife coming together in love. Bring about a baby. You are that for God, a picture of love. Your very life is an expression of God saying, I love you. I made you. I designed you. I sustain you. If you're living today, if you're breathing today, it's by the mercy and grace and love of God that you are alive in this moment. That's true for all of you, whether you believe it or not, whether you give Jesus credit or not, whether you pray to God or not, he loves you. That's amazing. And if you're a Christian, God has made that love known to your heart. You're personally acquainted, not just with the idea of love, but the person who is love, God himself. And he doesn't just want us to receive it. He wants us to be changed by it and then to give it as an expression of what he's like. This is what is distinctly unique about Christians, at least it's supposed to be. We love others our enemies. Matthew 5, 46, Jesus goes on. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now he's really getting the religious leaders because they hate the tax collectors. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, here's the truth. Apart from Jesus Christ changing us from the inside out, giving us a new heart to want new things and new power by the Spirit to do new things, all we are is transactional in our love and in our hate. I love you because you love me back. And when you hate me back, I hate you back. I mean, some of you came into the, the gathering today and someone greeted you and said, good morning, and you went, good morning. You might not have meant it, but it's what you do. Someone said, how are you doing? And you said, good, how are you doing? We're transactional, right? 
That's, we're, we're, we do that our whole life. Like, man, they're a really good friend, so I'll be a good friend. But can we be a good friend to someone who's not a good friend? Can we be a, a one who loves to someone who won't return love? Some of you are in marriages right now where you're going, like, that's the only way we've made it is by the help of God helping us to be faithful when we don't really get love back for it. See, Bonhoeffer said, this is what makes Christians different from other men. It's the peculiar. It's the extraordinary. It's the unusual. That which is not a matter of course. It is the more. The beyond all that. The natural is one and the same for heathen. And Christian, the distinctive quality of of the Christian life begins with the going beyond the natural. The mark of the Christian life is the extraordinary. If I could say it differently, the mark of the Christian life is that you have a holy other enabling you to do what you couldn't do without him. You have the Holy Spirit of God that enables you to love like you could have never loved were it not for him. That's what you have. It's what makes us distinct. Verse 48, I said we'd get to, it sums it all up. Not just this passage, but the whole passage that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect. That's the Greek word teleos, as your heavenly father is perfect, teleos. Why do I say that? Because you could also translate it, you therefore must be whole, as your heavenly father is whole. That's what that word teleos means. It means you are the same person in and out. You are living out your purpose for existing both internally and externally. See, the Pharisees had taken Leviticus 19.2 and chapter 20, verse 26, where we hear God say, be holy as I am holy. And they put that alongside of Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, that says, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And they made it primarily, they made this holiness primarily about external realities, how we look, how we appear, how we don't touch or taste or go with people that are broken or, or, or messy. And in a sense, they, they said the way to be holy is to stay away from unholy things, which hopefully you can already see that's arrogant to go like, we're holy and they're not. Right? Jesus later calls them whitewashed tombs because inside they're just as messed up as everybody else, even though they look religious. I, I grew up, if you grew up in the South or the Midwest, you grew up largely being told, don't eat that, don't drink that, don't watch that, don't listen to that, don't dance with that. And especially don't hang out with any of the people who do any of that. Right? Maybe that wasn't your upbringing, that was mine. I remember my mom at one point saying, Jeff, it's like you're on top of this table and you're, you're trying to stay on it, but all your friends are trying to pull you down. Who's gonna win that battle? Unfortunately, that's a wrong way to think about Christianity. Christianity isn't me and my own strength trying to stay on the table. Christianity is Jesus holds me till the end. Jesus keeps me from all evil. Jesus protects me even though I give myself to it. And he forgives me and, and, and sustains me and changes me. He, it's not me. It's him. It's not my power. It's his. It's not my efforts. It's his. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. And so what are the religious leaders doing? They're saying, how do you live a religious life without the power of God? Just keep yourself from any possibility of screwing it up. That's pretty much it. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, 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 your righteousness must be better than that. You must be whole like your father is whole. You, You gotta be the same person all the way through. And some of you go, how does that happen? 
He's got to change you. He has to do it. I love it that Jesus playfully switches out these words in front of these religious leaders. You know, Leviticus 20, 26 clearly says, you know, you must be holy, and the Greek word is hagios. And he, instead of saying, you must be holy as your heavenly father is holy, he says, you must be whole as your father is whole. And what is he saying? He's going, religious leaders, you are a bunch of hypocrites. You're just religious performers. And I want to tell you, if you've been in the church a long time, if that's all you see Christianity is, I'm telling you, you hate your life. No, nobody wants to go around pretending to be something they're not. Nobody wants to just put on the front. God wants so much better for you than that. He wants the internal to produce the external. Why? Because that's what he's like. See, Let's go back to God is love. God is love. Let's be clear. God's not sitting back going like, should I love them or shouldn't I not? He can't help it. He is love. His very nature is love. It's not like he goes, I might love and I might not. No, he goes, I am love. So what flows out of God is love. He can't help it. It's who he is. And that's a lot of what Jesus is trying to illustrate this whole time. God doesn't murder. Why? Because he's just a saint, giver and sustainer of life. God doesn't commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful. God keeps his word. Why? Because he's truth. God forgives and even gives to those who dishonor him because he is merciful and kind. It's his nature. God loves his enemies because God is love. And if you are a child of God, you are no longer what you used to be. You are no longer defined by your sin or your behavior. You are defined by the very nature of God himself. That if you are born again by the spirit of God, you have the very DNA of God in you. Therefore, you can love because you have been born through the one who is love. Do you understand this? This is so amazing. It's so amazing that, that I, God isn't saying, Jeff, try to love. He's going, I made you to be love. As I am love, you're my offspring. You're my son. You are like me. Now go live with what I've given you. I've poured out my love by your, my spirit into your heart, Romans 5, 5, so that you would be my son in the world, showing what I'm like by the way you love. It's incredible. I mean, Jesus, Jesus from the cross looks out and sees everybody spitting on him, mocking him, just destroying him, and and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he said that for you and me so that I would know love of another kind so that while I was an enemy, he loved me. How much more certain should I be that no matter what I do, the love of God is for me and with me and he'll never leave me. And this changes you. It changes you. If, you, if you. if you get the love of God, it changes how you love people. I know I've referenced it before, I'm gonna do it again, but one of my favorite books is Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. And uh, it was made into a movie, and of course the movie always leaves out some of the best parts. How many read the book? It's a good book. He gets captured and brought into a, PO, into a prisoner of war camp in Japan. The guy that kind of leads this tortures called The Bird. He dehumanizes Louis. Eventually, when the war's over, he's sent back home, turns to alcohol because of the pain and hurt that he's got to try to deal with, the bitterness, the rage, the hatred. 
He begins to dream of saving up enough money to go back to Japan and go find the people that tortured him and go, go get him, get, get revenge. One night he wakes up in the middle of the night choking his wife because in his dream he saw himself choking the bird, this man who tortured him. His wife knew that this could not continue. Eventually she brings him to a Billy Graham crusade after a couple days of hearing Billy talk about sin and the need for a savior. Louis is sitting there going, this is not for me, this is not for me. They do an altar call, the people come forward. Louis doesn't want to do it, but he hears, he was reminded of a prayer that he prayed when he was in the middle of dying and he said, Lord, if you'll save my life, I'll serve you. And then one after another, God reminded him of every mercy that when they shot the plane, he didn't get a bullet. That when he was in the water, the shark didn't eat him. That when he got in the POW camp, he never dropped the, the big pillar that was over his head. He had, he had a supernatural strength to sustain, sustain his life. And he realized it was God all along who had been loving and merciful to him when he didn't even recognize it. But he could look back and see, it was you all along who saved my life for this moment. And he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and his heart was changed from the inside out as he understood the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of God. And instead of going back to go and get revenge, he went back to give forgiveness. He sought after the bird, but the bird had killed himself and it grieved him. And Louis actually says, I felt such sadness and compassion for a man who didn't know. He didn't know the love of God. He didn't know the forgiveness he could have had. See, when you get to love of God, it changes you. It changes you from the inside out. You can't help it. You want to love. You might say, I struggle, Jeff. I want to, I want to love, but I struggle. But that's a good sign. How many of you have been in those situations? You're like, man, it's so hard to love this person, but I want to love this person. And until God changes us, I will not rest. I will continue to cry out that God will change me and God will change them so that we together can experience the love of God and reconciliation. That's the evidence of a new heart. And I want to be clear, grace is not just unmerited favor for, from God so that he'll love us and he'll forgive us. It's also divine empowerment from the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. So some of us think grace is, is somehow the antithesis of works and I would say no, it's the means to good works. When you get grace, you can do works for the glory of God. Sarah Groves in her song, Add to the Beauty, says this so beautifully. This is grace, an invitation to be beautiful. See, God wants to change you from the inside out to be everything he meant you to be. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. When you know that's you, you can't help it anymore. You want to love. I want you just to imagine loving your neighbor, the good ones and the bad ones, like he loved you. I want you to imagine loving your classmates, the good ones and the bad ones, or teachers, like he loved you. In tangible ways, not just this ethereal feeling. He came, he lived, he served, he died. Imagine if you were to love your peers or your boss at work, the good ones and the bad ones, like he loved and served you. Imagine missional communities this year as you invite people over to your homes, you have cookouts and parties and they keep rejecting you and think you're silly, that you don't give up on them. 
because he didn't give up on you? Imagine if your mission community agreed that they would commit to regularly pray for people far from God who presently live as enemies of God, not as friends of God, but you would love them consistently for the next year, serve them, give your life to bless them, care for them in tangible ways, pray that God would change their hearts, and even if he doesn't, I guarantee you will change this year. What would it look like if we lived such radical lives of love for enemies that the world would stop and take notice that God must have shown up because that's what he's like. I want to end with a story. A while back, we owned an eightplex, eight-unit apartment in Tacoma that I had a mixture of different kinds of people living in and one particular couple was often laid on their rent and not always involved in things that were great that I, from my perspective in the, in the apartment. I remember one time when he stopped over to talk to me and I kept him out on the porch the whole time and Janie asked me later if that would have been Jesus, how would you have treated him? And so I would have invited him in and eventually we invited them to join us for some of our meals with our mission community and that didn't go so well, but we tried and eventually he started to help me with some of the stuff on the apartment because he was handy and he did that in exchange for some of his rent that he wasn't able to pay. And eventually I made him the, the manager of the apartment over time because we built trust. I remember he called me and said, you got to get over here right away. There's a guy who's been hitting his girlfriend in the other apartment. The police are here. They're taking him away. And so I show up and the police are trying to get the guy to calm down and he's yelling and losing control. And he's, and Michael, the, the, my, the guy who is the, the apartment manager, he's got a gun. And I, I had called Randy because he was an army ranger and I thought I might need help, one of my friends. And uh, I said, Michael, put the gun away. He goes, we might need this. I said, no, no, that's not how we do things. Put the gun away. I said, we're gonna pray. And so he and Randy and I just started praying. He didn't pray. He wasn't, didn't know Jesus at the moment. And uh, we started praying. I started praying that God would change this situation, calm the man down, and as we began to pray, the whole thing calmed down. And he watched it. And he said to me, how did that happen? I said, well, that's God. God's real. God hears our prayers. When we pray for people like this, God can intervene. And he's like, no way. How does that happen? And all of a sudden, he started to lean in. Because here's a God who actually shows up in everyday life. Over time, Mike came to believe in Jesus. I was just talking to him a few weeks ago, and he, sa- he calls us regularly. He sometimes sends a text. I just want you to know we love you. Our lives have forever been changed because of you. And he called me and he said, I just want you to know, like, I listen to your messages online. I'm not trying to boast. I'm just, here's a guy who is very, very far from God. He goes, I will never go back. Jesus changed my life. And it's changing how I treat people. And he said, I watched you and it changed me. And I don't say that to boast. I'm just saying every single one of you, if you have the spirit of God, has the ability to tell the truth of what God's like to people who desperately need to be changed. It's true, family. I want us to believe this. Because what else are we doing? Like, I don't want to go to church. I want to be the church. I don't want to talk about God. I want to interact with the living God. I don't want to tell the world there's good news. I want to show them it. Our world needs 
a people who are so distinctly different in the way they love that they can't just excuse it away anymore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I love this church. I love these people, my brothers and sisters, and those who don't yet know you, I pray you would work in their hearts to show them how much you love them. That you gave your own son for them. That Jesus, you willingly laid down your life for your enemies. And we were that, and now we're your children, Father. And we want to look like you. We want the world to see what you're like. We can't do this without your help, so we will devote ourselves to love our enemies and we will pray. Because without you, we can do nothing. So would you work in and through us for your glory and for the good of those around us and for our own joy. We pray, amen.